listening to a Drishti Point podcast. Please visit our website for more inspiring interviews on yoga, spirituality, and wellness. And today's interview is one of our newest hosts, Liana Yip, and she will tell you about the guest that we recorded an interview with a few um, a few weeks ago. Thanks, Farah. So the interview today is going to be with Michael Stone. And Michael Stone is a psychotherapist, yoga teacher, Buddhist teacher, author, and activist. He is the founder of the Center of Gravity Sangha and based in Toronto. And his most recent book is Awaken the World. It's a great read. You should definitely check it out if you get the chance. Yes, maybe if we have some time at the end of the show, we can speak a little bit about uh, it, because I know that you've read it and you probably were very inspired by it. Definitely, I was. <laughs> All right, so we're going to listen to a pre-recorded interview with Michael Stone. Focusing today um, on, on kind of the psychological aspects of your, your teachings and your background. Um, and I'm wondering, I wonder, I'm wondering if you can tell us a bit uh, about your background and, um, you know, through your teachings and your writings, um, there, there isn't uh, a lot on your psychotherapy practice, and I understand that you're a psychotherapist as well. So I'm wondering if you could tell us um, what came first, uh, your psychotherapy practice or your, your roots in your yoga and your Buddhist teachings. Well, in a way, they all braided together right from the start. Mm -hmm. I was at a place in my life where I really... Uh, needed to go deeper, <clears throat> go deeper in my life and, and, and learn more about what was going on for me. I was very depressed mm -hmm. and I really had no interest, uh, interest in, in finding a career. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I was in a place where I really just wanted to, to learn. And so I investigated psychotherapy, Buddhist meditation, and yoga practices really all at the same time. And so right from the beginning, I've always thought that they uh, are a kind of integrated whole. And I think that yoga practice um, has really been influenced by Buddhist practice in my own life. And both Buddhist practice and yoga practice have really been influenced by my psychological studies and explorations. So in a way, I can't really separate them. When you go deep into working with the body, mm -hmm. we're working psychologically. And when we go deep into working with the mind, we're working physiologically. And when we work deeply uh, in terms of ethics or community or relationship, we're working with all the psychological dynamics that Western psychology is so skilled at exploring. Mm -hmm. So for me, all those different angles are all uh, different ways of looking at, at what it means to, to be awake. Mm -hmm. So they're all complementary to each other. And what you're really, really describing there is how um, they, they bring uh, certain aspects to each other that perhaps just one of them wouldn't be able to fully uh, fully get to. Yeah, that, I mean, that's been the story in my life. I think that um, really when you go deep inside a system, 
that system has ways of looking at any problems that might arise in that system, and systems are very sophisticated, and that's one of the beautiful things about lineage. Mm-hmm. But, but in the West, it seems the way we're learning these practices are not about being rooted in one particular lineage, and the lineages seem to be having uh, communication with one another. And so I think um, the way Buddhist practice is showing up on Western soil is really in the fields of neuroscience, uh, of mindfulness and psychotherapy. And I think this is a fabulous conversation. Mm-hmm. And, and so I think, you know, here in the West, it seems what we need uh, may not be the same thing that was needed, you know, 400 years ago in northern Japan or southern mm-hmm. India. Mm-hmm. And so I think we're integrating systems. And then again, you know, as I say that, I also think that traditions have always been like that, too. I think we have sometimes a kind of fantasy that there's this pure tradition and now we're, you know, changing it because we're introducing psychological dynamics. But I think those things might have been built into the teacher-student relationship from the start. You know, for example, traditionally a, a teacher wouldn't take you on unless you've made peace with your parents. Hmm. And it's interesting as, as a psychologist to just think about that idea, you know, when one of the dynamics I see a lot teaching is that when people have a lot of unresolved stuff with their parents, they tend to project it onto the teacher. Mm-hmm. So maybe this was a way in the past where teachers mm-hmm. saw that happening, possibly, mm-hmm. and uh, and had a kind of uh, samskara or a kind of uh, pattern that they encouraged people to enter, which is you know making peace with their parents before they practice. I, th- I think this is an amazing idea. Mm-hmm, definitely. I, I think that um, we can... Uh, Western psychology can definitely learn a lot from from psych- psychologists and uh, teachers in the past. And I'm wondering if you can um, perhaps touch on some specific benefits that uh, Western psychology uh, can get from incorporating those traditional teachings. I know you've spoken a little bit already, but I'm wondering if you could perhaps get a little sure. deeper. Mm-hmm. Well, well, I think for me, one of the really interesting things about Western psychology is that it's so good at helping us recognize patterns and recognize stories that we hold mm-hmm. that have been unconscious or that lead to addiction, uh, maybe stories about self-judgment or stories we have about our past that really need to be updated, so to speak. I think one of the interesting things for me about the yoga and Buddhist traditions is this real distrust of story, this real distrust of narrative, Mm -hmm. this sense that, that yes, we need narratives and we need stories to have meaning in life. Mm -hmm. And also it's really powerful to be able to see that stories are just stories and really being able to kind of drop into spaces in awareness that are free of language. And one of the ways we do this in yoga practice is working with the body. So, When you work with the body, you start to see how there are certain sensations that are pleasurable, that we enjoy feeling. But when you really finish the end of your exhale, and you're really present moment to moment in the different patterns of the postures, we start to enter into patterns of sensation that are not the ones we are used to. And we're asking awareness to really become intimate 
with new patterns of sensation. And this tends to bring up old emotions, old wounds. We call them samskaras, which is where in English we get the term scars. Mm -hmm. The breath tends to touch old scars. And what we do is we open up to those stories, we open up to those feelings, but eventually what we're trying to do in our yoga practice is to be able to open up to pure sensation. What's it like just to feel raw sensation before we decide whether we like it or not? And we just see all these stories we superimpose on top of just the raw sensation of being a body. Mm -hmm. And then... You know, once we become skilled at meditation, we can see that in the background of raw sensation is, is just, is everything, is, is just the whole natural world. That maybe all these feelings we have and thoughts we have that we think are so personal are actually really just, just, uh, like weather patterns. Mm -hmm. and, and I think this kind of undoing of our personal attachment to narrative, our personal attachment to our stories, our, our, our personal way of looking at everything is very, very healing. And that's a kind of existential level, a spiritual level of practice that I think sometimes Western psychology is not as skilled or practiced at, at touching, even though it may happen here or there. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that input. I am, I'm wondering... Um, because it's clear that there's so many benefits of, of in, incorporating these teachings into uh, Western uh, psychotherapeutic practice, but um, I'm wondering if there's any benefits of, say, bringing in uh, these current models of psychotherapy to a yoga practice. I know that um, yoga has done so much in my life to heal, heal me, and I know that... Um, my story is not unique, and it, it's done a lot for many, many people. Um, but I'm also aware that perhaps yoga is just a, um, an individual healing modality might be lacking. So I'm wondering if you could touch on um, how Western theories can complement uh, yoga or meditation practice as well. Yeah, but, well, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a huge and really interesting and important an even impressive area to explore because I think generally what I see in the yoga community is that the, the teachers may be very skilled at sort of the physical therapy side of practice, but I think yoga teachers really aren't being trained in the, in the psychological aspects of practice. And I think this is really important because we, we really live in an age of anxiety mm -hmm. and and most of the people who are coming into our yoga classes are very, very anxious. Mm -hmm. There's kind of a, a level of anxiety we've accepted that I think is, is a kind of illness, you know. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that the, the kind of deeper level of anxiety is, is, is people not really being able to, to feel the ground under them. To, to, to feel that underneath their ruminations, underneath their fear, underneath their worry, they can be held. Maybe there are people coming to practice who, when they were young, were never held in a way that they ought to be held. Maybe their parents weren't present. Maybe there was some trauma. Maybe these old wounds start to appear in practice. And then I find that 
yoga teachers so often are not really trained to be able to recognize how to work with the emotional and psychological patterns that show up as we start to practice. And one of the main problems of not being able to work with and, and, and recognize when emotional and psychological stuff is going on for students, one of the main problems with that is that the way old wounds show up is through projection and in relationship. So I think it's really important that yoga teachers start to learn how to use their relationships with students, not just to build community, which is something we're all talking about these days, but also how to recognize whether students are projecting onto them, where they might be counter-projecting onto students, where all that, that subtle, unspoken uh, stuff that goes on between people can be a, a place of healing. So, so I would love to see um, uh, teachers learning more about Western psychology and also about how to use the relationship with students as a way of healing, as, as a place where healing can happen. Can you say more about about that, about how um, yoga teachers and students can use that relationship uh, as a, a mode of healing? Sure. I mean, first of all, yoga teachers, as they start teaching, their social sphere, how many people they reach in a day, really increases, and, and it feels great. And, and I think so one of the, the first things to look at is just the way yoga teachers can often become uh, inflated from being the authority figure in the room, being the person everyone likes. And I see so many yoga teachers who come to me and say that, you know, they, they really suffer from the, the stress and the pressure of performance, mm -hmm. where in a way being a yoga teacher can be a kind of entertainment sometimes. Yeah. And, and then the yoga teachers often don't have the language or the tools to be able to look at what's going on for them. Mm -hmm. And and so then um, it doesn't really get looked at in a way that can be so helpful because, you know, we all want to be liked. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. and, and, and the problem with having a kind of public uh, job is, um, is that wanting to be liked can also become a trap that actually really hinders our, our deeper spiritual growth. And uh, so that's one piece. And the other piece is um, when there's deep unconscious stuff coming up for people, when difficult stuff is arising, it tends to be projected onto the teacher. Mm -hmm. And this is I, what I see in yoga communities that create so many problems, is that the teacher doesn't recognize the projection and then there isn't the, the kind of space for the student and the teacher to really enter into a dialogue about what's going on between them. Um, maybe the teacher's not skilled enough. Maybe the space is not set up for that. Mm -hmm. Maybe the student is not given a space where they can express themselves. Mm -hmm. So I think as yoga develops in the next century, I really feel like some of the models from psychotherapy where the relationship can be used to heal old relational wounds, will start to show up more and more, not only between teachers and students, but between students and students, 
Be- because this is how community grows. You know, we call each other on our stuff. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I think in the modern commercial yoga center, there's no place for that. It's just not built into the model yet. And I, and I think it needs to be. Otherwise, you know, people are just coming in as anonymous consumers uh, taking their yoga class and not really developing a relationship of the heart. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that that's too bad. Yeah, and and in some ways, I'm not I'm not sure, but um, could it be considered uh, ethically a little dangerous to um, to not have that space um, to hold people's emotions and and not really know who you're teaching, and then um, perhaps people be triggered into something, and and to not have that in place. Um, would you be able to comment on that? Yeah, well, you see that all the time. I, I mean, uh, you see so many yoga studios doing so well for, you know, X number of years, and then suddenly, you know, half the students leave. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and you see this over and over again, where, you know, people love the teacher, they inflate the teacher, and then they deflate the teacher and want to kill the teacher. Mm-hmm. You know, the same thing that adolescents do with their parents. Right. You know, where, you know, the, the kid wants to rail against um, authority, mm-hmm. uh, but it's really important that they can do it without killing the authority. And, and um, I think these dynamics, for me, they're really fascinating. And part of it, too, is that the center that I run in Toronto is run more as a community center than a commercial yoga studio. So within about a year of people coming, I tend to have a, a kind of personal connection with them where I get a sense of what's going on in their practice as best I can. And they also get to know me too. And it's not exactly a friendship, mm-hmm. but it's also not anonymous. And, and, and that space I find is really interesting. And, and also... Um, uh, having this relationship with other students, I think the students also start learning from one another that you, you just watch the way someone rolls out their mat. Mm-hmm. You, you watch the way they fold their clothes in the change room. You watch the way they're breathing. You watch the way they're finishing their inhales and exhales. You notice how there's mindfulness in how they speak and how they eat. And, and then there, there's a kind of deeper practice that starts to take root because of also watching other students. And so, again, getting back to what we were saying earlier, I I think one thing psychology in the West has really opened up is really seeing how what's so healing for for all of us is relationship. Mm -hmm. And it's also where our wounds are. So how can yoga include relational life? And, And I think it can because we tend to practice with other people. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Well, thank you. Um, that was a, a very enlightening answer. I'm wondering, you know, we've talked about uh, what yoga and traditional teachings can bring to you, psychotherapy and, and vice versa, and I'm, I'm wondering if you could comment on uh, the sutras of Patanjali and, and how those... Um, uh, are um, beneficial to to uh, have as the base in our yoga practice, and and also if they complement a Western 
psychological perspective. I know that Patanjali has been described as one of the earliest psychologists, so I'm interested to hear um, your thoughts on that. It's interesting you call Patanjali a, a psychologist. I've always felt this way, you know. He always gets lumped into the category of philosophy. Mm-hmm. And I really think uh, Patanjali is a kind of anti-philosophy. He, 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 I don't know who he is. I think probably it was many people who we call um, Patanjali. I, I think probably the Yoga Sutra was written by many people. But in any case, um, authorship aside... I, I think one of the core teachings at the beginning of that text is um, yoga chitta vritti nirodha, that, that yoga, which I like to translate as intimacy, is when we're not clinging to everything that moves through awareness. And so the way I read the Yoga Sutra is as a psychological textbook Mm-hmm. about how to recognize the inherent intimacy of everything, that healing only happens through intimacy, that when we're caught up in our ideas about our sadness, our ideas about loneliness, our ideas about anger, our ideas about other people, we're not really connected with life. And so Patanjali seems to take this route of waking up through yoga or through intimacy, where our path is to be intimate with what we're feeling, to be intimate with others, to be intimate with anger, to really be one with sadness. And then when that happens, we open up to what we're feeling and what we're feeling is impermanent. Then it moves through us. So it's like the way I read Patanjali is that he's asking us to make this incredible vow mm-hmm. to include everything, to just be devoted to everything. Whatever chitta vritti is showing up, whatever distraction is showing up, you don't push it away, mm-hmm. you don't hold on to it, you just open to it and just see it as a chitta vritti. You just see it as a, as a movement of the mind without clinging to it. And that's not a kind of witnessing exactly. It's actually feeling what's moving through us, but just not holding on to it. And for most of us, our our trouble is that we don't actually feel, we don't actually see, we don't actually hear. We're not really in the senses. We're in our ideas about what we're feeling, our ideas about what we're seeing. And, And so we're not really... Uh, deeply in that vow of opening to our lives. We just tend to open to what we want to open to. Mm-hmm. And so, so this is really, I think, the, the key of uh, the Yoga Sutra, is, is how do we uh, see that, that the path to waking up is through becoming intimate with what's actually showing up in our lives? not with a belief system, not with some mystical concern, mm-hmm. but actually th- through what's actually really going on right now. That um, I'm just thinking about how there is so much parallel to um, 
to Western psychological practice as well in, in what you just said. But at the same time, there's that aspect of, um, of not being caught up in a narrative, um, which yes. is, is uh, a danger of, of clinical practice in the West, I, I believe. So um, I'm wondering if you could um, describe or, or give us an idea of what your clinical practice looks like. What, what would you expect um, as a person who uh, would like to pursue psychotherapy with you? Well, in the past couple of years, I haven't been uh, practicing straight ahead as a psychotherapist because I've been traveling, teaching, and writing so much. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I do do is I meet students who, uh, usually after a year or so of people coming to workshops or study, I, I start to work with people more closely. So many of my students I meet maybe uh, once or twice a month for almost an hour. Mm-hmm. And we'll we'll sit face to face and we'll talk together about what's going on in their life and what's going on in their practice. And so I borrow everything I learned from psychotherapy <laughs> uh, when I do that. Mm-hmm. But it's not straight ahead psychotherapy. It doesn't have the rhythm of psychotherapy. Um, and and our intention is really uh, to to wake up to the intimacy of life. To wake up to the oneness of life. Mm-hmm. And so I use some tools from psychotherapy. I use uh, tools from uh, the Yoga Sutra. I use tools from the Buddha's teaching. Um, but really the, 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 the interest for me is what actually goes on between us in the room in the moment. What is the student bringing up? What is it bringing up in me? And, and what we can explore to, together. And, and so that's how I'm working with people nowadays. Um, mostly because I had to give up my psychotherapy practice for, for reasons of time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but there are many people who study with me who have, who have, uh, you know, more traditional psychotherapy practices. And, you know, they all say to me, they tell me not only how much their practice benefits them as therapists because it, it lends better presence to the session, mm-hmm. but also it's so, wonderful as a therapist when you can work with somebody who has a meditative practice because they can talk about what's going on for them without as much distraction. They can report on what they're feeling without getting out of it so much, without being so jumpy. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I, you know, when someone comes to work with me, it can be many different things. We could be doing pranayama practice together. We might be working on meditation practices together. They might have asana questions. Or, you know, I think this week, uh, last Friday, I met with students almost all day, and, and I don't think we talked about practice at all. We mostly just talked about different things going on in their life, maybe around money or some job they want to leave or uh, grief mm-hmm. over uh, death of someone close to them. And I think that's really where yoga is healing is, is you know, when, when the times get tough, you know, how does our practice really hold us? How does our practice really support us? Not, not our idea about backbending. 
even though, you know, I love backbending. <laughs> but, but when the times get tough, how does what we're learning in the backbending process really show up as a, as a skillful tool for, for, for holding us in, in our lives when we really want to try and escape? You know, that, and, and that's the heart, heart of yoga, I think. The, the heart of intimacy is, is to, to really be devoted not just to the things we want to be devoted to, right. but but to what's ac- actually going on. And you know, I, I sometimes think children naturally feel this. Mm-hmm. You know, before we grow up and get knocked around so much, you know, we. I, I think, you know, sometimes I think the spiritual practice or this religious practice is really about getting back to this vow of of really being here in our lives. Um, the way we, 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 uh, we felt a kind of openness to things as, as young people. Mm-hmm. And kind of but like, now we have more experience. Mm-hmm. So accessing that curiosity that we all once had, but, uh, through being thrown around so much as kids and growing up, uh, and throughout our lives, we've kind of alert, learned to avoid, um, certain things and be attracted to others. Yeah. Um, and I don't, I don't mean it in a naive way, like, we should all just be like kids, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, how how do we have that openness, that 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 kind of uh, excitement about getting up in the morning mm-hmm. that that we had as young people, but married to to the experience we have now, you know. And, and I think if if we don't have that. Uh, despair sets in and, and we kind of lose our, our urge to live, you know. Mm-hmm. So, so I think in a way getting through a day is, is, is religious. It's spiritual because it has to do with a vow of wanting to be here. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And I, you know, you've, you've described so far as how, you know, how important it is to, to, have all these aspects in our um, yoga practice and in our psychotherapy practice. And I'm wondering, we're running out of time, but but just one last question. Um, I'm wondering if you could uh, comment on where you see yoga and psychotherapy going in the future. Um, I know you've You've kind of mentioned that um, in the next hundred years or so, you can you can see yoga studios incorporating more of a space for emotional healing, and um, I'm, I'm wondering if you could touch on uh, the future of both of these practices. Well, I think that I would like to see yoga and neuroscience have a much stronger relationship mm-hmm. because I think. Uh, in my own pranayama practice, I always wonder if all the time we've been spending studying people's brains for images and chemical changes that happen during meditation practice, I've always wondered what it would be like to study the base of the spine and the pelvic floor in relationship to breathing and, and, and psychology and neurology. So, so I, I would like to see yoga and neuroscience develop a much closer relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, I would like to see yoga and clinical psychology develop a relationship where yoga taught clinical psychology 
uh, all about the body and all about what it means to be in levels of experience below language. Mm-hmm. And then I would like to see Western psychology share with practitioners of yoga uh, an understanding of the relational dynamics of life that I think Western psychology has mapped out uh, very skillfully. Mm-hmm. So those are two areas that, that interest me uh, a lot. And, um, and, and I, I think that, um, you know, as yoga teachers, uh, get trained, uh, in, in more intensive ways, uh, and as the yoga community comes into dialogue with other, um, uh, systems, uh, I, I think that there's nothing but good things down, down the road. I think there will always be the danger of commercialization, mm-hmm. but, but that's nothing new. Right. Uh, I, I just don't pay attention to it. Right. Well, thank you so much for being on Drishti Point, Michael. Um, thank you so much. Thank you. It was a nice conversation. It was. That was Michael Stone speaking with Liana Yip, our newest Drishti Point host. And Michael Stone will be here in Vancouver twice this year and will be doing a study and practice retreat um, from May 18th to the 20th at Langara College. And it looks like it will be a, a great place for yoga teachers and yoga students to really explore in depth all that he has to offer in his teachings. You can get more information about that from the Langara Continuing Studies website, and it's langara.bc.ca slash yoga. And um, Liana, who did the interview with Michael Stone, is here in the studio. And you've read Michael Stone's books, many of them, uh, including The Inner Tradition of Yoga. So tell us what really inspired you about the book. Well, not only in this book, not only in The Inner Tradition of Yoga, but in all of his books, I'm really inspired by Michael's writings because he has he has a way of putting his words so that um, you can really get a sense of how to uh, connect the inner world that we work on th- in yoga to the outer world on all levels. So he brings in, you know, um, inner process, and he also brings in how this is connected with environmental um, activism and, you know, uh, relationships at a familial level, societal level, global level, level. So I've never come across somebody who can who can articulate that as well as Michael can. Mm-hmm. I think actually some of the Western teachers are very good in speaking Western language because I think yoga was always intended to be a practice of being awake in the world, which is you know mm-hmm. one of the titles of his book. And, and I think it was always intended to allow us to live in the world, but he's able to articulate it in such a clear way that it makes sense to us. Very, very true. And um, in terms of the inner tradition of yoga, he, you know, sometimes philosophy can seem so far removed from our society and from where the world is at right now. So um, he goes through the eight lim- limbs of yoga and he makes it, um, I found it, uh, that it resonates well with where the world is at right now. Whereas if you read, you know, um, scripture, sometimes that's not always going to resonate at the same level because it's it was written so long ago. Yeah, and I think, you know, the language that it was written in, I think for 
any scripture, it's important to have a living teacher who understands the meaning and the essence and is able to translate it for us and our times because it is different circumstances that we live in. Mm-hmm. So that was your favorite book of his, The Inner Tradition of Yoga. It was, yes. And what made you like it more so than his book, for example, Awaken the World? Well, that's a hard one because I really like Awaken the World, too. <laughs> um, it, you can't really compare to the, compare the two because Awaken the World is um, actually recorded uh, recordings of his talks that he's, he's done around the world. So it, it's really, they're both coming from very different places. Um, the inner tradition was was resonated with me because um, I found it hard to concentrate in in reading old scriptures and and it just it it captured my attention um, and uh, made the language uh, understandable for me. Mm-hmm. You know the other. Um author I'm thinking of and the other yoga teacher I'm thinking of that is also able to do that is Nishala Joy Devi and her book The Secret Power of Yoga was a interpretation of the Yoga Sutras and I think she also makes it very accessible Mm. that people can really relate what the Sanskrit words to how we interact in our traffic and how we interact in our home life and how we interact with our partners. So there are some great teachers that we're very lucky to have access to. Indeed. So you will be able to access this interview with Michael Stone on our website if you like the interview and you'd like to share it with friends. And since February 1st, we've moved to a membership-based website. So if you'd like to have access to all of our interviews, of which we have more than a 100, including interviews with Nishala Joy Devi, then um, you can take a membership and it only costs $12 a year and it helps to support our programming here on our on Drishti Point. So thank you for listening. Thank you, Liana, for being here at the studio and for recording the interview. Thank you, Bye. And we will end with a a song called Riding the Wind and it was composed and produced by Tim McCulley as part of the whole Namaste DVD series that uh, featured the sequences of Kate Potter. Thank you for listening to Drishti Point. We dedicate our efforts to the health and happiness of our listeners and for the health and happiness of all living beings. <laughs>